The title is, of, of the sermon is uh, What We've Received We Give. And it, it, of course, is taken from that key turning point text in, the, um, in that, that passage in Acts 3. Peter said, I don't possess silver and gold, but what I do have, that's what I'm giving you. In the name of Jesus, anointed king or Christ of, from Nazareth, rise and walk. It's especially meaningful for me these days. My legs have gotten hurting more and more, and I need to be able to rise and walk uh, more and more these days. But it actually, especially, that's not what got me into thinking about this sermon. It's, it, it has been Amy. Um, over, in, over the recent period, the, you have to divide the COVID period into epochs now. Uh, in the recent epoch of our COVID uh, period, she has preached a series of sermons for us uh, centering on the second chapter of the, the book of Acts. And um, she's been exploring those, uh, those uh, texts, four of them all the way uh, through, starting off with uh, back in March the 7th with one entitled The Mighty Wind on, on the first part of the book of Acts. And the, coming of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost. And then um, a picture is worth a thousand words, Acts, uh, Acts 2, 14 through 36. Am I doing something wrong? Probably so. Anyway, I won't worry about it. Uh, 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 and then one on May the, 20, uh, the 23rd uh, entitled um, uh, Death is Defeated on Acts 2, 23 through 26, and then most recently on, Acts, on August the 1st, a common love uh, uh, based on uh, Acts 2, verses 37 to 47. And I hope that you will go back on YouTube and find those and, and listen to them again. Listen to them all together in order as a, as a, because they are really worth, uh, worth listening to. And, and also it's... Uh, she had set for herself a particular task or, or a particular resource that she wanted to explore, and that was a, a wonderful theological commentary that was written by, by Willie James Jennings, who's a professor at Yale Divinity School, on, on the book of Acts. And she used that. She refers to it uh, uh, several times in, in her sermons. But it's uh, because of that, thinking about that, going, uh, going over that, and, and then thinking about the, uh, the story in, in, the, in the, the book of Acts in the next chapter, chapter 3, that I decided to take a, a slight symbolic break from, from our, our series on the Gospel of Luke in order to look at Acts chapter 3. And it connects intimately with the issues that are going on in the text that we've been studying early on in Acts. And... Um, I think also, since Matt is also here and he's been um, he's leading a book discussion group, it connects very closely with the issues that are raised in that discussion group of of the impact of reading scripture and how we read scripture as we bring it into our lives. And so I hope hope that we'll be able to to link together some of these things. This story in Acts, the third chapter, 1 through 26, we had, I wanted to take the whole thing because it's all one story. Luke sometimes, like we, I think we highlighted a, a bit ago about Jesus' baptism, that he only spends two verses describing Jesus' baptism. But here he spends a whole chapter on this particular event, telling about this. 
It follows the story of Pentecost. It follows the outbreak of proclamation about Jesus. It follows the coming of the Holy Spirit and the building of the new community and all of that. But Luke chooses to tell this story because, I believe anyway, because he sees, he knows, he recognizes how this healing, the, the narrative of this healing, for us to read it and to see it and to think about it and to see Peter's, hear Peter's address, how it unites to tell all the heart of what's happening in, um, in Jesus. And as he tells it, he chooses his words to help us readers, the readers back then, the readers now, 2,000 years later, to grasp that reality. And it starts with this juxtaposition that you heard, this setting side by side of beauty and ugliness at the beginning of the text. Acts, the third chapter, verses 1 and 2. I'm going to be reading here from, from my own translation. Peter and John regularly went up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour, 3 p.m. Now a certain man, crippled from birth, was regularly carried there. And each day people would set him at the temple gate known as the beautiful gate. There he could request gifts of mercy, or what we would call alms, from people on their way into the temple. The beautiful gate. That was its nickname. That, it, it wasn't the official name of it, but it was evidently, though there's dispute about everything, everything archaeological, it evidently was the, the gate that sort of led from the court of Gentiles and so forth into what was known as the court of women, the first large court on the inner, inner temple. And it was tall, several stories high, and beautifully decorated and surrounded by the structures of the temple, including marble and gold and silver and all of those, those things. It was wonderful, so that among all the other wonders of that temple, it got the name beautiful. But then, right there, at that spot, there is this man every day. A man who's crippled from birth. And I think Luke just wants us to draw on your, our imagination of somebody who's never, ever been able to take advantage of life. You can't think of somebody that's gone to, through a whole rehabilitation hospital in our day. This is in a time when there was no such thing. The only way of life was just to be out there and to beg if you were, if you were in that situation. It's the kind of thing I think Luke knows that, that Ordinarily, we, when we see it, are impacted by it, but we look away soon. It's brokenness, it's suffering, but it's suffering without fault. He was crippled from birth. It's not that he did something wrong and injured himself or that he was punished by God. He was crippled from birth, but it's also in that day, certainly everybody would have taken it as hopeless. There was no chance of any real change. 
And so the beautiful gate of this magnificent edifice for the worship of God, this great gathering place with the colonnade of Solomon behind it, the, this place that would enter into the place of whole, the Holy of Holies where God was supposed to dwell, right there beside that beautiful entrance was this symbol of human, not symbol, this reality of human suffering and brokenness right there. And the man is there every day, brought there by others, he can't move himself. And as we can recognize, he uses piety to survive. We know how it works, and it works as long as it works. <laughs> People come in, they're going into the temple to worship God. There's a, a need, obvious right there. They, they give something to, to help the need. And then they go inside and they can worship and pray and listen to the Levites singing on the steps going into the court of the Israelites and all of that. They can share in it. They, they feel better about themselves and the man survives another day. You do it. And then you repeat, and you do it, and you repeat. It's satisfying in a certain kind of way, as long as it lasts. Sometime the man may get to where he has nobody to carry him there, and then he will end up in some obscure room, perhaps to starve to death, as so many people did in those days. It's human brokenness. Peter and John step into that scene. Acts 3, verses 3 through 5. When he saw Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked for a gift. But when Peter, along with John, gazed directly at him, Atenidzain in Greek, Peter said, look here at us. Then he fixed his attention on them, expecting, of course, to get something from them. Peter and John, of course, like we do, know the situation. It's a situation that we can envision even across 2,000 years. Not exactly the same as in our time, but, but we know what this kind of situation is. <laughs> and Peter and John had been with Jesus. People lined out the doors and across the fields to come to Jesus with just such problems. They had seen them brought to him every day. But for Peter and John, something else has happened. The healings, yes, that Jesus did, certainly. But that, that hadn't made the total impact on either of them, especially Peter we're thinking about right now. Jesus had happened in the sense of his crucifixion had happened. His resurrection had happened. Pentecost had happened. They now know a new reality, a world that isn't limited to this scene of the crippled man by the beautiful gate. He's, Peter says, look at us. Look at us. What do you see? What do you see? 
you think about the Gospel of Luke, this is one of the reasons I say that there's a connection between studying the Gospel of Luke and this, because Luke, at numerous points, calls our attention to this kind of connection, this kind of confrontation. If you remember that the very first sermon in the series that we've referred to many times now, but we will again, Peter, uh, uh, Jesus goes to Nazareth in Galilee and preaches there. And we're told that he reads from Isaiah, the 61st chapter, and it is, it is, preaches on that. And then it says, all eyes in the synagogue were gazing at him. Using the very same word that's used here about gaze, fixing their gaze on him. The question always there is, what did the people see when they looked at Jesus? What does the man see when he looks at Peter and John? Or think about the passage I love in Luke 7:44, where, where that woman that from the city comes and into this big banquet thrown by a Pharisee and. and at Jesus' feet, washes his feet and cries over them and dries them with her hair of all things. And all of this goes on and Jesus turns calmly to the Pharisee and he says, Do you see this woman? <laughs> he hasn't seen anything else since she walked in the door. But he doesn't see her. Certainly not in the sense that Jesus sees her. Or, again, another passage that we will come to again and again at the end of the gospel, Luke 24, verse 31. Those disciples on the road to Emmaus who see Jesus, they talk to him, but they don't see him until he gets to their house and breaks the bread and then it says their eyes were opened and they saw him. It's that seeing that's important. Look at us. What do you see? Well, as we would expect, the crippled man sees reality as he lives with it every day. He needs alms. He hopes that they're going to give him something. Peter, I think maybe, looking at the man, at least I think that Luke is wanting us from the way that he tells the story of Peter through the whole gospel and into the book of Acts, wants us to realize that in some way Peter sees himself in this man. Peter knows that in a different sense he was crippled from birth. He sees, perhaps in my imagination, sees himself drawing that sword in the garden of Gethsemane, ready to cut somebody's head off. He just missed and just got the ear in, the def in defense of Jesus. So Jesus could escape. And then he goes, follows Jesus in, and he denies that he knows Jesus in order to probably, at least this is my guess, stay hidden. And again, he's still thinking that maybe he can be the hero and rescue Jesus or something like that. Coming out of this crippling life, this crippled life, this crippling lie, Peter knows is not easy. So listen to that, the passage where this happens, and let's sort of move it down in slow motion. But Peter said, I don't possess silver and gold. 
What do you think hits the man that's sitting there? How, how long does it take for him to turn away? Crippled, he can't turn fast, but, oh. Then move right along, there's others behind you. But what I do have, that's what I'm giving you. <laughs> What's this going to be? Is he going to give me a seashell? Is he going to give me a mushroom? Is he going to give me a scripture verse? Is what, what's he going to give me? And then Peter says, In the name of Jesus, anointed king from Nazareth, rise and walk. What do you think the man thought? Oh, he's giving me nothing. He's just saying words. Peter speaks. But he also knows that he's got to act because he knows how hard it was for himself to see. And so Acts chapter 3, verses 7 and 8 say, And grabbing him by the right hand, Peter raised the man up. And right then his feet and ankles were strengthened. And jumping off the ground, he stood up and started walking. Then he entered with them into the temple, walking and leaping and praising God. Wow. What would have happened if Peter hadn't lifted him up? Would he have just stayed there sitting? I don't know. I mean, that's just one of those things one can think about. But he doesn't. Peter lifts him up. Peter raises him. And every time the word raise or rise is used here in this whole story, it's a term that is used for Jesus' resurrection. The resurrection of Jesus strikes home to this little man here beside the beautiful gate. He is raised in a sense that transforms his life. The people, the people are astonished. They're bewildered. They, they, they knew, they understood the old scene. The old scene of the crippled by the beautiful gate. It was touching. It was, it was motivating. Now he's dancing. That can't happen. Acts chapter 3, verses 9 through 11. And all the people saw him walking around and praising God. And they began to recognize that this was the very person who sat wanting alms at the temple's beautiful gate. And they were full of astonishment and were bewildered at what happened to him. And because he was holding tight to Peter and John, all the people came running together to them in the area called Solomon's Colonnade. Utterly astounded. got to be some explanation. Who are these guys? Should we run to get away from them and escape, or should we approach them? Are they magic? <laughs> Do they, can they shoot rockets off into the sky and ride them themselves, you know? Or, they, you know, or can they make cars that drive themselves without any human being? Are they magic? Are they powerful? Is it dangerous? Peter speaks to them. He knows how hard it is to see, to accept how God 
really works. Chapter 3, verse 12. And as Peter observed all this, he responded to the people. Fellow Israelites, what makes you marvel at this man? Why are you gazing at us? as if we were people who by our own power or fear of God had made him walk. Peter knows their quandary. It's human beings who wield power in all its different forms in the, in the world that we normally lived in, live in. Now, Peter and John had invoked Jesus, but Jesus is dead. He can't be powerful. The people are in God's temple, but they can't see him. He's the symbol of the nation and the land. <laughs> He's an object of all, but even the high priest himself can't call on God to do this kind of thing. Chapter 3, verses 13 through 15. Peter says... It's the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. It's the God of our fathers. He has glorified his servant, Jesus. Now you, on the contrary, handed him over and denied his identity. Ooh. What do you think that word denied felt like coming out of Peter's mouth? Denied his identity before Pilate. Even when he had decided to release him, you refused the Holy One and the Righteous One and demanded that Pilate graciously give you a man who was a killer. And thus, you kill the one who's the source of life, whom God raised from the dead. We ourselves are witnesses of this. Just notice kind of the, hmm, what can one say? The, the boldness, the brashness, the intimacy of this. I'm looking you right in the eye. You did it. Actually, I did some of it too. It's right here with us. This is not some grand claim that, well, we won't even need to go into that, I hope, of, of some great national guilt or something like that. But it is us. We're the ones involved in that. But what's happening here is the is God, God, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers. He's the one who's done this. He's glorified his servant, his servant Jesus. And so in this irony-filled indictment, Peter indicts, in, in a sense, his former self. He indicts. God's worshiping people who are right there in the temple and he says are directly opposed to the God that they're worshiping. They destroyed the healing and the life and the truth that they came to worship. 
surely it's all guilt from here on out. He prepares us for that. We know what to expect. Next comes the thunder and lightning, right? They all get struck down. And so we have here, though, a turn. I want to go back and just start again with verse 15 and go on through 17. And thus you, you, killed the one who's the source of life, whom God raised from the dead. We ourselves are witnesses of this. And then there's this phrase that gets translated in different ways, but I follow the way that I'm translating it here. It's about the name of Jesus. And I, instead of simply using the name, which kind of gets, has the kind of feeling that if I just say the name, it'll be a magic word, that it's really about who Jesus is, his identity, his very being, who he is and what he's done. And the word that's often translated here, faith, is really talking about the faithfulness of God that comes through Jesus. And so this is the translation of, of beginning with verse 16. And by the faithfulness that belongs to who he is, his very name, that identity gave strength to this man that you're observing and know. And the faithfulness that's working through him, God's faithfulness that's working through him, gave to this man the complete health that you all see right in front of you. But then the surprise. But now, brothers and sisters, I know, and I think it's an existential knowing here, I know that it was out of ignorance that you did these things and also did your lead your rulers in spite of the obvious intentional guilt Peter says that he sees and certainly implies God sees ignorance Peter knew that kind of blind ignorance crippling lifelong ignorance that blinds us to see God's reality God won't be stopped. His self-giving love, his taking on our suffering and our death came anyway in spite of our ignorance. But it's not good to live in delusion. It's good to know what that reality is. Acts 3, verses 17 through 21. But now, brothers and sisters... I know that it was out of ignorance that you did those things, as also did your rulers. But what God proclaimed in advance through the mouth of all the prophets, that his anointed king would suffer. Uh, just put, push the pause button for a second there. What God proclaimed in advance through the mouth of all the prophets if you asked basically anybody among the Jewish families of that time, the scholars, the teachers, any of them, the very last thing that they would have said that the prophets all foretold was that his anointed king would suffer. That's what happened with Jesus? Jesus was the one who saw the connection between 
the Messiah and the suffering servant and brought those together as never before and saw that all of those prophecies are connected together in that. That's seeing the scriptures through the lens of Jesus. Peter has gone through that transformation of vision and so he can say with a straight face that through God has proclaimed it through the mouth of all the prophets that his anointed king would suffer. That's what God brought to fullness in this way. Therefore, change your whole way of thinking. That's our big translation of a, of a word that usually gets translated with a little word, repent. Change your whole way of thinking and turn toward God in order that your sinful, misguided understandings, your, in Greek, hamartia, your sin, may be wiped clean so that seasons of refreshing renewal may come from the Lord's face and that he may send for you Jesus as the anointed king chosen specifically for you. Now it's necessary that God's realm welcome him till times for setting all things right, times God told of through the mouth of his holy prophets ages ago. This is what's going to, to happen. He wants them to see this, that this transformation of a way of reading the scriptures, of seeing it through the lens of Jesus, of where God has come in that, shows that there needs to be this whole change in the way that they they, they look at everything. They see everything. Peter knows the quandary that they're in, but he challenges them to, to uh, see all of this in, in, a, in a new light. Change their thinking to repent. Think about what we talked about when we talked about John the Baptist. What was his message? A baptism of repentance so that sins could be forgiven. When Jesus talks about who he's reaching out to, he says, I don't come for the righteous. I call sinners to repentance. In Acts chapter 2, verse 38, that highlight of the, of, of, the day of, of the day of Pentecost, Peter says, repent, change your whole way of thinking and be plunged into Jesus' name for the taking away, the release of all your sins. It's not a slight revision. It's a paradigm shift that he's talking about. You're familiar with the phrase paradigm shift. I'm sure if you go back to probably some college course where you've had, had to deal with it. If you've ever read about sci the history of science or philosophy, it's, it's a term that was made popular by a man named Thomas Kuhn back in, in a book written in 1962 about the, the structure of scientific revolutions. How Everybody works within a certain paradigm until something happens to break it open. And often it's a major process that has to happen in order to break that, that paradigm open. Till one 
one lives with Ptolemaic ideas of, of the, all the spheres going around the earth for the, the, the nature of the universe until Copernicus can envision the sun at the center of that. He still doesn't get it all right, but he has that, that big change and it changes. Or, or till Galileo looks through the telescope and he can see the, uh, see the moons of Jupiter. Or until you, you just go, go down Isaac Newton and the idea of gravity and all of those things, that idea of, of instantaneous forces at a distance. Or, of course, then later on of Einstein, and on and on and on. These changes of the whole way that we think about everything. That's what Peter is saying. Change your whole way of thinking. Repentance at its heart is not just seeing that I've done something wrong and saying I'm sorry. That's a little part of it. That's, that's one element. That's a manifestation of it. It's seeing the whole reality unblinded. Sins flow from sin, a distorted understanding that needs to be wiped clean. And faith is not a revised rule book or a guide for a bit better living style. It's the world seen in new light, in new depth, seen in the light of God's love and what God can and does do. <sighs> now the people think they know where God's going. They think they know of future judgment and resurrection. But that's out there. That's out in the future. But as Peter goes through these scriptures, he shows them that all of that is not just something that's a warning for the future. Peter takes them into those scriptures through that lens of Jesus. To start again with verse 21. Now it's necessary that God's realm welcome him till times for the setting of all things right. Times God told us through the mouth of his holy prophets long ago, ages ago. Moses, for example, said, your Lord God is going to raise up a prophet for you from your brothers and sisters, as he did me. You'll listen to him in everything, whatever he says to you. But it's going to happen that every soul that doesn't hear that prophet is going to be uprooted from the people. This is Deuteronomy 18, 15, and then 18 and 19, a kind of paraphrase of all of that. And all the prophets from Samuel onwards, everyone that spoke, also proclaimed then the next words. Not that, not that future that's coming, but these very days. That's what's happened with Jesus. That future, that resurrection, that, that days that are to come, the times of refreshing renewal, Come now, you can step into that world, you can live in that right now. You, me, even though we, by any ordinary reckoning are guilty, God chooses to forgive. God chooses to wipe it clean. But we've got to participate in it. It's a change of thinking. It's a change of paradigm. We've got to step into this 
new world. Peter says to them, you are the descendants of those prophets and of the covenant God made with your ancestors. When he said to Abraham, in your seed, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Genesis 22:18, and also Genesis 12:3. When God raised his servant, again that echo of Isaiah, I, it was to you first that he sent him in order to bless. Ah! I thought it should be to punish. In order to bless all of you as each turns away from the evils that corrupt you. Step into this new world. Isaiah, Moses, even Abraham. It all comes from God's life-giving, self-giving love embodied in Jesus that now is present to bless you right here in this temple. You that are standing here in Solomon's porch, but also all the families of the earth right down to New York City 2,000 years ago uh, from now, and maybe even California, we're not sure. So. The paradigm of Jesus is real. That's what this is about. That's why Luke spends so much time on this whole story, because he knows that all of us even 2,000 years later, are still going to be having struggles with this because we, like that man there beside the gate, like Peter, we always live in this other paradigm, this other world. And it's hard. It's hard to release. It's hard to let go. It's hard to step over into that new paradigm. What happens? Healing breaks out. You start dancing. You are the beloved in a world of God's love. Let's bow together in prayer. Heavenly Father, Father, you know the crippling things that each one of us has experienced in our own stories. You know how as we look at ourselves so, so often we know that there's ugliness and brokenness that we value other things and we try to use our religion and we try to manipulate it all. Father, help us. Help us to have our eyes opened. To have our feet and ankles strengthened so that we can dance. Help us to leap for joy in your temple, not just walk in with a self-satisfied smile through the beautiful gate. Help us, Heavenly Father,
to look at everything, everything, past, future, scripture, hopes, dreams, but also all of our weaknesses and our problems through the lens of Jesus, through that astonishing, unstoppable love. Help us to have our eyes opened so that we may see and we may call others to look at us. We are living, working, acting, serving in Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen.